The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. We are in our second week this week of Who's Your One? And I trust that you have your one at least. Somebody asked me last week, can we have more than one? I said, you can have all of them you want. Just make sure you pray for every one of them, right? Uh, We're only, well, actually, we're less than two weeks away from the official start of the 2019 college football season. Amen. Some of you get stupid during college football, right? You go crazy. I love college football. I love Saturdays, not like yesterday, but it's cool of the fall and the smell of leaves burning and going into the house, catching a couple of minutes of this game and going back out, catching a couple of minutes of that game, coming back in, fighting with my wife because she wants to watch Hallmark. (laughs) And I think about it, every team that starts the college football season has a particular goal or mission in mind, right? I mean, every team, if it's, if it's nothing but just making it to a bowl game, they have that as a mission. They start the year, and they're going to make it to the bowl game, or some have ambitions of making it to the national championship. And I think about college football, there's nothing else like it, really. Fans are, are part of that mission with them, Right? We saw last week the crazy guys all decorated out in the tailgate parties before. They sit on the sidelines, and, you know, people just, it's almost like they have dual personalities, right? They're all mild and meek in church, but you get them on the football grid on Saturday afternoon, and they're just crazy. They're all a part of that mission that the team has. They, they yell, and they the other thing that, that I find that we all do as college football game, uh, college football fans is we like to critique a lot, don't we? You know, you're sitting there and saying, you dummy, he's wide open. Well, why are you staying with the wishbone, huh, Steve? You know, something's got to change here. And Monday morning or Sunday morning, you're like, yeah, that coach and this and that and the other. And we like to cheer him on, but we also like to critique a lot. But do we realize that we're not the one out on the field playing the game? We're in the stands observing and watching on. It's easy to do Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking, isn't it? It's always there. We never stop and realize that we're not on the field contributing with them. We're great cheerleaders, but truthfully, we're not actual participants in that. I love the quote by Vince Lombardi, great football coach in Notre Dame, uh, excuse me, Notre Dame, uh, Green Bay Packers. And he said this to his team, Uh, he had a goal every year, and that was to win the title, right? The NFL title. And talking about the mission of pursuing that title game, he said, guys, if you're not fired up with enthusiasm to the mission, then I'll fire you with enthusiasm. I like that. But you know, it's easy to get caught up in the idea of a mission without realizing our personal role in the mission. We like to get behind the mission and we say, yeah, that's great. And and we wave the flags and we say, that's a great mission. But in that mission, there's a responsibility that we have if we're participants in that mission. 
You hear it almost every week. We have a mission as a local church. It's the mission that Jesus gave to us. It's not a mission that JMO came up with, but we are called as the local body of Christ, the church, to display God's grace to all people, the same grace that He displays to us. He has called us as His ambassadors to display that grace, and we have a responsibility in that mission to win them to Jesus, make disciples of them, and and send them to win others and make other disciples. It's a mission that he's given to us. And I want to talk about that this morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 5, beginning in the 17th verse, uh, a story and account that we're all familiar with. As a matter of fact, a few months ago as we were going through Mark, I talked through this, but I want to look at it in some different application this morning. It's the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man. Beginning in verse 17, Luke writes for, for us this. He says, on one of those days while he, that's Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. Pharisees, teachers of the law, they had traveled up to that area north of Galilee uh, to hear Jesus and they'd come as far as Jerusalem. And they weren't there to be encouraged by Jesus. As a matter of fact, they were there to look for excuse and reason that they might shut him down and ultimately kill him. In verse 18, just then some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before Jesus. But they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd. The crowd was so great they couldn't get him in. And they went up on the roof and they lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd right before Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? What was Jesus saying in that? He's declaring that he is God. And they say, Who can do this except God himself? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man. I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. And immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astonished. They were giving glory to God. They were filled with awe, and they said, we have seen incredible things today. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by the Holy Spirit of God and your word, God, that you would prick our hearts, God, that you would encourage us this morning through your word and by the Holy Spirit, Lord, Lord, to find that place of engagement in your mission that you've called us to, God. Each individual person that makes up this local body, God, you have a place in that for us. And so, God, we, we want to see God and go away just like these went away when they saw that a man's sin was forgiven and say, we have seen some incredible things 
in our midst. Father, we pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that I want us to look at this morning is that these men, these men that were bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus, number one, is that these men had a mission. I mean, they were on mission. Their mission was to get that paralyzed man to Jesus because they wanted him healed. And isn't it true that mission drives us, doesn't it? Regardless of whether or not we have a stated mission in our life, and maybe we haven't given much thought about it, but each and every one of us is driven by some type of mission in life. It drives us as individuals, but it also drives our culture Somebody said mission is what gets things done, and I'd say no, acting on mission is what gets things done. Just having the mission doesn't get it done. I've known some families in the past that have gone so far as to making uh, statements of the mission for their family, and they write it out, they stick it on the refrigerator, they, they post it in the den. They, every kid in the family knows what the mission of that family is, and it's what keeps them on course in a family. It's very popular today for companies, and it has been for some time, though, but, but most companies have recognized that they need to have a very definite mission statement, that they need to put in writing and put before all of their employees and their customers what their mission is as a company. They put it out there, and it's what keeps that company moving forward towards what their purpose is, and in other words, it's, it's, it's what helps them keep the main thing the main thing, right? If your mission is to sell widgets, then you don't start trying to manufacture widgets, right? You find somebody else to manufacture them. Your mission is to sell widgets, etc. Here's some company uh, mission statements that I'll read for you in just a minute. But it's a mission that, that steers us, and, and in that company, if you might be with a company that has a mission, if you're an employee of that company and you begin to steer away from that mission and have ideas of your own and begin to veer away from that mission, odds are your supervisor or your boss is going to call you in and say, hey, hey, Ollie, here's the mission. Is there such a thing as a retirement mission? <laughs> yeah, Okay. Uh, Ollie, that, that's not quite the direction we're going in, and I want to steer you back into the right mission. And if Ollie insists, but well, this is the way I want to go, then the supervisor is probably going to say, well, you know what, let me help you find a place that has a mission that aligns with what you want to do. Instagram has this mission to capture and share the world's moments. If you're familiar with Instagram... It, it, their mission is to capture and share the world's moments. Facebook mission is this. It's a media platform for grandma to keep a track of their grandchildren. No, that's really not. <laughs> grandma and granddad, if you're going on Facebook, the, the kids have moved to Instagram, okay? They're, they're not there on Facebook anymore. But here's Facebook's mission, although I'm not sure that their mission lately really captures what their mission statement is, but it's to bring the world closer together. That's their mission. We know what Facebook does. Here's Starbucks for those of you who love coffee. Starbucks' mission is to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. And they are in just about every neighborhood, aren't they? Some neighborhoods have more than one. 
Here's, I love Chick-fil-A's mission. Now, I'm not endorsing any of these companies, but I just love their mission. It's, it's not about the chicken sandwich to them. The chicken sandwich is just a means to accomplish the mission. Here's their mission. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. To have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. My pleasure. That's their mission. Let me ask you a question. Do you realize that Jesus had a mission statement? Jesus' mission statement is found right here in the next chapter, or a few chapters later in Luke chapter 19. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry was towards that mission, was it not? And when we read the Gospels and we see Jesus sticking true to that mission, we realize that Jesus did not get caught up in the politics of his day. He didn't make an appointment with Pontius Pilate, did he? Well, he did, but it wasn't of his choosing, right? He didn't get caught up in that because Jesus recognized that he had a greater kingdom, and it was the kingdom of God that he was on mission with to seek and save those that were lost. I noticed that Jesus didn't get caught up in, in a special, or special social issues of his day. You may say, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Didn't Jesus talk about justice? Yes, he did. Didn't Jesus talk about the poor? Yes, he did. But Jesus recognized that the answer to all of the social ills has to deal with saving lost men and women who are lost in their sin until there is a transformed heart and a changed life, then nothing is going to change in culture. Can you say amen to that? And so, we look at this, I remember, I, I think of Paul when he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy is a pastor there in that area, and if I can paraphrase what Paul says, Paul says, Timothy, Timothy, man, you, you, you've got a mission that God has called you to, and we can put that in application to every one of our lives, and he uses the analogy of a soldier, and he says, Timothy, the soldier does not get caught up in civilian affairs. In other words, there's a mission there that he's called you and us to, and we're not to get caught up in civilian affairs. Let me ask you a question. What is it that drives you? Maybe pause for a minute, give you, give you time to answer that question in your mind. What is it that drives you? What are those spiritual things that God has put on your heart that you long to see come to fruition in your lifetime? Are there some spiritual things that God has put in your heart as a part of the kingdom of God, as one called to follow Him? Are there specific things that God's placed on your heart that you desire so deeply to see happen in your lifetime? Glenn, I know you want to see great-grandchildren disciples. I know that's your heart. What are the things that God has placed on your heart? Do you have kingdom dreams? What do I mean by that? I mean, do you, have, do you have dreams, things that you can imagine that you want to see take place and happen spiritually because there's such a drive to follow Christ and see other people come to faith in Him and follow Him? 
ponder the questions or are, are, are your dreams all tied up in this life? Folks, this life's going to end. For some of us, it's closer than it is for others, and none of us know when it is. There are matters that are eternal matters, specific spiritual matters that carry long past our life, and God wants us to be a part of those things that He has called us to do and the things that He's put on our hearts. When's the last time that you stopped to think about those dreams? I never forget my Uncle Bill several years ago passed away, had diabetes, and uh, at the end of his life, I'd gone to his house to share communion with him. He hadn't been able to get out. And my Uncle Bill began to recount for me that at an early age, he knew that God had placed a call on his life in some form of ministry. Now, whether it was he was a police officer, maybe it was through the local law enforcement, I'm not sure what that specific call was. But near death, his greatest regret was that he did not fulfill that which God had placed in his life for him to do. Now, he knew God's grace and he knew God's mercy, but he was regretful that he didn't step out into that at that young age in his life. Let me ask you this question. As you look at those dreams, what steps have you intentionally taken towards fulfilling those dreams? Notice the key word there, intentional. Do we realize things just don't come by osmosis? Now, God moves and God acts and God does, but if I read my Bible correctly, and if we all read our Bible correctly, there is a part in that that He calls us to cooperate with Him in, right? The book of Ephesians, we're, we're, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works so that none of us can boast. But those works that we do, the Bible says that God has foreordained those works so that we might walk in them. You see, he has stuff for us to do in these dreams that he's placed in his heart. What intentional steps have we taken to fulfill those? And, and here's the second question. If we haven't, then, then what is the first step that I need to take in order to move into that which God has called you and I to do? And don't get in your mind that calling is that, well, God hadn't called me to be a pastor or God hadn't called me to be a missionary, or God hasn't called me to be a worship leader, or God hasn't called me. Listen, He has all called us to be on mission with Him. Can I get a big amen to that? Every one of us in here this morning that are born again, we have a call on our lives to go and make disciples. And if I haven't taken that step, then, then are there some values that I need to realign in my life? Do I value the mission that Jesus has called me to, you to? Do I value that over my life-centered, narcissistic, it's all for me and nobody else kind of thing? Do I need to shift that value? Do I need to shift my priorities? Do, do I need to rework my schedule? Do I need to, to rework my leisure time? Nothing wrong with any of that. Listen, God has given that to us for pleasure, but Sometimes there has to be a reevaluation, a realignment of priorities, and do I have to realign my resources in order to see that dream fulfilled that God's placed on my heart? The second thing I want us to notice is this. Not only did these men have a mission, but these men had an eager expectation. 
<laughs> I mean, they actually believed that Jesus could heal their paralytic friend. They expected that, you know, if we can just get him at the feet of Jesus, that maybe, maybe, because they'd known he had done other miracles, and they, and they knew that he could, and they, 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 they had an expectation that if we get him there, then Jesus will heal him. I, I find this pattern all throughout Scripture. When I read in the Old Testament as well, it's true of men and women throughout the Bible. I think of Joshua. I mean, Moses is gone. Moses has died. He, he, God's not going to permit him to go into the promised land. And the mantle is turned over from Moses to Joshua. And, and Joshua laying out the land or spying out the land, wanting to see what was taking place over there in the promised land, sends 12 out, 10 come back and says, there's no way that we, wrong, wrong pronoun, right? There's no way that we can take it. Joshua, on the other hand, was relying on what God could do, and so were uh, Caleb. And who's the other guy? I get going so fast here. The report. I think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. When he's there with all the prophets of Baal, and they're taunting Elijah because he's worshiping the one true God. And Elijah says, okay, listen, I'm, I'm going to prove to you that that God is who he says he is, and he has the expectation that if he calls out to God, God is going to prove himself faithful. And so he says, hey, man, bring all the sacrifices up here. Bring the meat up here, and I want you to take all these barrels, and I want you to douse all of this stuff with water, and I'm going to call on my God. And he calls on God, and whoosh, what happens? The fire consumes all of it. Elijah had expectation question I need to ask myself is, do I have eager expectation of my one coming to faith in Christ? You see, we were all asked to select our one or, or our ones. Write their name on a ping pong ball, drop it in the display out here, and pray every single day, now three weeks remaining, and, and pray every day that God would move because no one comes to the Son unless, unless what? They'd be drawn by the Father. Do we have an expectation that God is going to save? Let me ask you a question. Do we believe that it's God's will for people to come to salvation in Christ. We do, right? But do we have an expectation that God is going to move? And we may not see it tomorrow. Some of you have been praying for children or grandchildren for years, but why do we keep praying? Because we have an expectation that God is faithful and God's going to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Does your eager expectation move you? Let me put this in the first person because I hate preaching to y'all because I need to preach to myself on this one. Does my eager expectation cause me to step out and move towards that one that I'm praying for? Is there an intentionality? I think about this just this last year or two of things that, have, that we've seen take place around here. Ryan's already mentioned that 
Vicky, Miss Vicky, had a real burden to get into the schools so that we might, might have an impact because we recognize and realize that the greatest way to transform our schools is through the children and their parents coming to know Christ. And we knew there were going to be some obstacles in getting in to the cl- into the school with the beach club. Why? Because the name of Jesus is in it, and we're unashamed about the name of Jesus in it. But the lawyers for the Board of Education and all that, you know, they worry about that stuff, right? And so we knew that there were a process of things that we were going to have to go through, and it went from one individual to another individual, finally approved by the board, and we were giving, uh, given opportunity to go into the school. And I thank God that Vicky, Miss Vicky, had an eager expectation that she knew God was calling us into the school, and God opened the door for that. Are you thankful for that? There is an eager expectation when, when Glenn came to me and talked to me and said, you know, this BTCP curriculum, this Bible training center for pastors, I, I know there's going to be a lot of obstacles in going into Liberia and training these 20 pastors. One is Glenn's physical limitations and, and, and abilities there. But we believe that God is going to train the, through the Word of God those men and that all of Liberia can be impacted by these 20 men, pastors that are being trained to correctly handle the Word of God and make disciples in their congregation. This week, I will be going to Nicaragua. I fly out on, they make fun of me the way I say Nicaragua. (laughs) Any Spanish-speaking folks in here this morning? Okay. I pronounce it correctly, Donna. Nicaragua. It's all you southern folk that don't pronounce it right. (laughs) Nicaragua. Okay. No. Nicaragua. Chuck Suggs and Harold Danforth are going with me. They're both stepping out in faith because I'm making them teach part of the course. (laughs) But these are 35 men, I think it was 35 we started with, three years ago before I began to pastor here, partnered with another church there. They've they've asked me to come back and teach the last course. And listen, it was difficult to, to get people down there to teach the courses, but we believe and know that God is going to impact the local church in Nicaragua with the gospel and sound Bible teaching because we recognize that probably within five years, Nicaragua is going to be just like Venezuela and all the missionaries are going to be kicked out and it's going to be left up to the nationals to do. And if we don't equip them, what is going to happen? It'll come to a screeching halt. Pray about that. We have 28 others, and we're graduating 35. We have 28 others already signed up, ready to go. Guess what? We're going. They're there. We're going to train them. Why? So they can do the work that God's called us to do. You see, I have eager expectation. I've spoken of this we, with, with Pastor Adrian. We, we know that we believe in our hearts and leadership that, that God is going to merge us as one body, that Nueva Vida will become a part of First Conyers, maintaining their own identity and culture. But my goodness, what a witness to the community that says, you know that, that white church up on the hill? Now we are one in Christ, different culture, different language that's spoken, but we're one, and that is going to be a great display to the community that we are one together in that. Amen? Go ahead. Let's thank the Lord for that. Lastly, I, I, I could, I, Ryan's already mentioned getting out of debt. Man, we're, God's going to do it this year. I, 
I am so thankful for Mark Marshall who had it on his heart and his mind when he came here in that short time that God had him for such a time as this. He moved us as a church to begin focusing seriously on getting rid of the debt that hampered hampered us so much. And by the end of this year, we're going to be debt-free by God's glory. Amen. Amen. Lastly, let me share this story with you. Vanessa Neely, known Vanessa for a long time. Vanessa writes this to me about her stepping out and and actively, intentionally beginning to make disciples. She writes to me and says, Over the last two years, I felt like I needed to be doing more. I had done both the discipleship study, and I really felt like the Lord was calling me to be obedient to His call to discipleship. When our church provided the materials on the discipleship gospel, I knew that I had no more excuses. I started praying about who to ask to be in my discipleship group. After the first four people I asked turned me down, I was very discouraged. I had great expectations because I felt like I was finally being obedient. But I was realized that it was not about me. The Lord, in His perfect timing, provided the right two ladies to start the group. It was a challenge getting together at first, and I again was discouraged when this was going nowhere. I honestly did not know what to expect and if this group would make it to the end. After the first week, I realized that this was not only going to be a learning and growing experience for these two ladies, but it was also going to be a growing experience for me. God stretched me to move out of my comfort zone and study more and be more prepared to grow with these ladies. We quickly bonded, and the Lord blessed our time immensely. There were still challenges along the way, but the ladies stayed committed, and we had a great time of growth and fellowship. In one of our last meetings, we had communion together at Dunkin' Donuts. Don't you love it? We have communion two weeks. Don't expect donuts for communion in a couple of weeks, okay? It was a sweet time. Now I am praying about my next group to disciple. Expectations that God is going to use as we step out in what he calls us to do. Thirdly, these men encountered obstacles. See, because of the crowd, there was no way to get this guy to Jesus' feet. Now, at this point, i got to be honest. At this point, I, I might have said, you know, I wanted to, but the door was closed. I mean, I really had good intentions. I wanted to get my friend to the feet of Jesus, but there was no way to get him there. And, and maybe it's time for me to throw out the white flag and say, I surrender all. I surrender. Maybe it's time to blow the bugle of retreat. There's no way in, or so it seems. You see, I've come to realize this, that we assume that an open door is equal to the path of least resistance. We assume that an open door is equal to the path of least resistance. Now, I use this vernacular a lot. I say when God opens a door. We, We understand that, but sometimes, sometimes... That's an easy way out for me not to intentionally step and go through the obstacles that are going to be in my way to achieving, accomplishing what only God can do through me. And I let the closed door be a sign from God 
That sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? Well, God closed the door. Hogwash. J-Mo, you didn't want to go through the obstacles to get through the door. Not realizing that there is a spiritual battle that is going on. Yes, the door is going to close. You think Satan is not going to come against everything that you and I do for the kingdom of God? If you think that's the case, we're miserably wrong. Can you imagine if the Apostle Paul only went through open doors? Think about it. Folks, we wouldn't be here today if the Apostle Paul had said, well, the door ain't open, and so I'm not going there. Listen to what Paul writes in, in these times where he had to go through closed doors in order to reach what God had called him to do. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24. I'll read it quickly. Paul says, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food. I was cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there's the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. If boasting is necessary, I'll boast about my weakness. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, a ruler under the king guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand from his hands. Thank God the apostle Paul didn't only wait for open doors. Let me ask you a question. What obstacles have derailed you from the mission that God has called you to be a part of? Sometimes we've got to tear the roof off of the house. Sometimes we've got to kick the door down. Sometimes we've got to pray, and that's the main thing God's wanting us to do is connect with Him in fellowship where we plead with Him. What would it take? What would it look like for you or me to dig a hole in the roof? Lastly, these men got more than what they bargained for. Can I be honest with you? I really deliberated whether or not to leave a missions organization to come back to pastor the local church. I'm just being honest with you. You know why? Because I was tired of settling for the mundane when I know that Jesus has so much more for the body of Christ. Can I say that again? I did not want to go back into a situation where I had to settle for the mundane because I know that God has called us to go and make disciples. And I didn't want to get encumbered with programs and all this different stuff that looks great on the calendar, but it never makes disciples. 
Don't settle for the mundane. God has stuff that He wants us to do for Him, and He gets the glory. I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ever think or ask according to the power that is at work in us, to Him be the glory of the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. You see, these men thought that the real need of their friend was an external need, but Jesus Jesus recognized and knew that the real need for every single human being is not an external need, but it is an internal need, and that they confess their sins, they repent from that, they trust Christ, and they're born again, and in that is a transformed life. Folks, the needs are not external, the needs are internal, and when we meet those, the external changes through transformed lives. Your sins are forgiven. Three quick questions for you. How did others play a role in your trust in Christ? Think about the moment when you came to know Christ. If you can't remember the moment you came to know Christ, then you're still lost and dead in your sins, and you need to repent and follow Jesus and trust Him this morning. But think of the time when you were born again. Were there other people engaged and involved in that? Think of that. In what ways has Jesus transformed your life? Now, it's easy to, to sit back years later after we've been saved, and we forget, we lose sight of what our life might have been had Jesus not saved us. I know what my life would have been if I would be here today. I know I probably wouldn't have a marriage because Jesus saved us, and He healed our marriage and brought us together in that. I know I wouldn't have a family. I know I wouldn't have grandchildren. I know that my life, while it has its difficulties, I would not have the one that I can draw in that time of that. Why would you not long for the same type of transformation in others? I'll close with this. This is from the book, People Sharing Jesus by Daryl Robinson. He writes, Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. And in fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. The fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who call themselves fishermen met in meetings, and they talked about their call to fish, the abundance of the fish, and how they might go about the task of fishing. Year after year, they carefully define what fishing means. They defended fishing as an occupation, and they declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of fishermen. Continually, they search for new and better methods of fishing, for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. And the plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. But the one thing they didn't do, they did not fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized the board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. They hired staff and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, defend fishing, and decide that new streams should be th thought about. But the staff and committee members, they didn't fish either. Large, elaborate, expensive training centers were built those original and primary, whose original primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. 
Over the years, courses were offered in the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates of fishiology, <laughs> but the teachers themselves did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and were given the fishing license that they had been hoping for. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters which were filled with many fish, many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and prayed over and sent to fish, but like the fishermen, they came back home. They never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so the fish would know the difference between a good and a bad fisherman. It's called relational evangelism, by the way, okay? Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were, it was surely enough. Now it's true that many fishermen sacrificed. They put up with all kinds of difficulties, and some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every single day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen, yet they never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were really not fishermen at all. No matter how much they claimed to be, yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never fishes? Or more plainly stated, is one really following if he isn't fishing? First Conyers, let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. What are you going to do this week to intentionally move out as fisher men and fisher women? Well, you take your ping pong ball with a name. Here's the name of one of mine. You put it in there. Don't just think that it's just a display that's put there so we can look at how many people are on our heart. But we want to see colors because we want to see people come to Christ as a result of us getting off the shore, getting into the water, and fishing. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.